Good morning. I want to welcome you as well. Good to be together on a holiday weekend. Those of you who are in town, maybe up late last night watching fireworks. Good to be here worshiping together. Any of you ever watch one of those uh, survivalist shows like Bear Grylls? You know what I'm talking about? Those people who, you know, they, it looks like they're all alone, but there's at least one cameraman with them. But they just go out, put themselves in the most ridiculous circumstances for some reason, um, and then show you that they can survive it, which is pretty impressive, right? Uh, if you were stranded in the wilderness, if you watch one of these shows, maybe you know, but do you know what your most urgent, pressing need would be? If you suddenly found yourself in the wild under extreme conditions, one of the first things that might come to your mind would be food. Food's important. You can't survive long without food. You can actually live up to three weeks without food, so that's not as pressing as you might think. Water is important. Apparently, these guys tell us. I would not know this stuff by any kind of experience, so I rely on their, their word for it. You have up to three days to find water under extreme circumstances. Fire would be helpful. You can purify water with it. You can cook food with it. Believe it or not, under extreme circumstances, your most urgent need is shelter. They say you can live about three hours without it in dire circumstances. It shelters you from the elements. It protects you from unknown predators, especially in darkness. Shelter, that's, is that surprising to anybody else? That's, that was surprising to me when I heard that. Food and water would be at the top of my list, but apparently shelter is your most urgent need. Now, if you've been paying any attention the last few months to recent events in our nation, you've noticed that um, things are getting kind of gnarly out there. And, and I think that has all of us wondering a lot about the future. I mean, if the last six months, the first six months of 2020 were any indication, everybody's wondering, what do the next six months hold? What does the future hold? I mean, it, it seems to many like our, our nation itself is on life support. I mean, just look at history, empires certainly topple. It seems like ours is teetering. And, and I don't say that to be an alarmist at all. I just, I want to be like the men of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. It's wise for us to consider what kind of times are these and what are our most urgent pressing needs. By the way, because of all of the wild prophecy speculators out there, I want to clarify, I, I don't believe this is the end of the world. Uh, I personally believe there are probably thousands of years left in human history. Um, but if we do pay attention to history, what's gone before us, we learn all kinds of things like nations rise and fall and Christians do suffer and people are prone to convince themselves things like, that will never happen to me. But like a, a survivalist, I, I would rather have what I need and not need it than need it and not have it, if that makes sense. And what we need is shelter. And there is no shelter like the household of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's what we've been looking at in Paul's letters to Timothy. The church is the household of God. 
As the household of God, the church is the shelter that you need for whatever the future holds. Good years or bad years, whatever comes, the church is the shelter that you need. Listen to pastor and author C.R. Wiley who says this about households and shelter. He says, to the old way of thinking, a house was more than a physical building. Its bricks and sticks were a metaphor for something immaterial, but very real. It can shelter us. A household can shelter us in much the same way that a physical building shelters our bodies. And like those buildings, a real house has an outside that it presents to the world and an inside that its members enjoy and benefit from. This is a household and it carries some of the same meaning as stronghold. So when we talk about the church as the household of God, that's what we're talking about. It's shelter. There's an outside presented to the world, holding out the truth of the gospel for the world, and there's an inside that provides shelter and protection to the members of the household. So turn with me to 2 Timothy 1. We're going to be in verses 15 through 18 this morning. And, and I think that's what this text is laying out for us, the urgency, the importance, the significance of having shelter in the household of God from suffering that comes in this world. This is God's Word, and I want to invite you out of our regard, our reverence, our love for God's Word to join me in standing as we read this if you're able to. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Father, this is your word. It's your word to us today. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so as we hear your word, would you produce in us faith? We, we trust you. We love you. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we are looking to you. Our eyes are on you, earnestly waiting, oh God, that you would nourish our souls, feed us and satisfy us through your word with food that this world knows not of. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, this is one of those texts. On occasion, somebody in the church will say to me, you know, I looked ahead at the passage that was coming and I thought, that's like one verse. What in the world is he going to say for... 35, 40, 45 minutes about that. This is one of those that if you glanced ahead and you read about Phygelus and Hermogenes and Onesiphorus, you might have thought, what are we supposed to get out of that? What do these people have to do with us? I think we find some help in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 when Paul, speaking to the church in Corinth about Israelites who lived a long time before Paul's day, He's referring to events that happened in the books of Exodus and Numbers. He 
says to the church in Corinth, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. These things happened to them, but they were written down for our instruction. And in God's wisdom and providence, he inspired Paul to write this letter to Timothy, including details like the names Phygelus and Hermogenes and Onesiphorus. And it's our belief, it's our confidence that these things were written down for our instruction. That, that's true here. So what are we supposed to learn from the things that happened to these people? I think we're supposed to learn how important it is, how vital it is to share in suffering. This is a deeply personal paragraph in Paul's letter. I mean, he's talking about people by name that he interacted with, some of it in very painful ways. It's an emotional passage. It's emotional language. And it's bookended by two verses that tell us what Paul's point is. Why does he bring these guys up by name? Well, look at few verses earlier, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, when he says to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but, here's the command, main point, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering. And then he goes on to say a little bit more, has this section about these guys and those who abandoned him and those who were faithful to him. And a couple verses later in chapter 2, verse 3, he repeats this command to Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Logan's going to preach on that passage in a couple weeks. But notice that these bookends, share in suffering, share in suffering. And here's a brief excerpt from Paul's life. He's holding out two examples. One is a negative example. Here are people who did not share in suffering. One's a positive example. Here's somebody who did share in suffering. Here's what it looks like and here's what it doesn't look like. So from Paul's relationship to Phygelus and Hermogenes and Onesiphorus, we learn that the household of God is the shelter that we need in the midst of any suffering or persecution that we may face. God does not promise his people that Hard things won't come, that persecution won't come. The kind of shelter we have in the household of God is not shelter that keeps all of the suffering out, but it's shelter that keeps us trusting in Jesus through whatever suffering God may allow in our lives. Suffering is a huge theme in this letter, Paul's second letter to Timothy. Right at the end of Paul's life, he has suffered a lot. He's preparing Timothy for suffering that Timothy is going to face he says in chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So that's a big theme in this letter. And he's holding out these two examples, positive and negative, to make this point to Timothy, share in suffering. God supplies shelter to sustain your faith through gospel community. God supplies shelter to sustain your faith through gospel community. Gospel community is the shelter that God uses to sustain your faith. Suffering is hard. Suffering alone is next level hard. And what you need in this crazy world is shelter. And that's exactly what you have in the household of God. That's what we see in this first negative example. Suffering is hard. Suffering alone is even harder. Verse 15, Paul says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Among whom, and he names two people by name, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Just, just think about that phrase for a minute. All who are in Asia turned away. 
from me. Some brief context. So Asia here refers to the Roman province of Asia Minor. The capital of Asia Minor was Ephesus. That's where Timothy was. That's where Timothy was pastoring. We know about the time that Paul spent in Ephesus from Acts chapter 19. Verses 8 and 10 tell us that when he faced some opposition there, he began this practice of reasoning every day in this lecture hall that belonged to somebody named Tyrannus. And Acts 19, verse 10 says this, This continued for two years. Two years Paul was in Ephesus, reasoning daily in this lecture hall, sharing the gospel, and look at the effect of it. To the end that, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's amazing because there were millions of people who lived in the province of Asia. And in two years, through the faithful witness of Paul, Luke can write that everybody in Asia had heard about Jesus by the end of this time. So lots of people have heard about Jesus. We know that many people were converted to faith in Jesus. And yet when Paul is arrested and imprisoned and on trial in Rome, no one is around. We get more detail in chapter 4, verse 16, when Paul says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. This is the sound of a suffering soul, lonely in the midst of suffering. When Paul says all who are in Asia, he doesn't necessarily mean every last Christian had abandoned him. Obviously, there were people like Onesiphorus, there was Timothy. At the end of this letter, he mentions names like Eubulus and Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the other brothers. So there were some who were still faithful. He, he's not saying nobody's even a Christian anymore, but those who were in any kind of position to stand with him, to support him, to be at his side when he was arrested and on trial, they were nowhere to be found in that moment of need. Faithful friends were few and far between for Paul in his darkest moment. All who are in Asia turned away. All who are in Asia turned away from me, he says. The, the abandonment was personal. There are a few other places where Paul uses this phrase, turn away, and there he's talking about turning away from the faith, turning away from the truth, abandoning the gospel. Here he specifies, they turned away from me. Personally, relationally, they left me. That's what he felt so acutely. That's what he's expressing here, this personal desertion. Just listen to the, the pain the loneliness, the longing in his voice when he writes, he's signing off in chapter 4. This is his last letter to Timothy, verses 9 through 11. Do your best to come to me soon. To come to me. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Timothy, come to me. Demas deserted me. Luke alone is with me. Paul is profoundly aware of his loneliness at this point in his life. And from his loneliness, I, I think we can learn 
that suffering alone is extremely hard. Suffering is hard. We don't have to be told that. That's obvious. Suffering alone is hard. And that, that should motivate us to seek shelter now in gospel community. Build shelter now by building up gospel community. Plug into local gospel community where you can belong, where you can know people and be known by people. I mean, just think about this. If Paul, the apostle, the great church planter and evangelist, an author of most of the New Testament, if he found it lonely, then you can be sure you would also long for community in the midst of hard things. And yet he was not completely alone. And from the example of Onesiphorus, we can learn that God does shelter his people. He does shelter and preserve the faith of His suffering people through the means of grace that He supplies in gospel community. Enter Onesiphorus, verse 16, Paul. When he mentions him, it's as a prayer. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. Just like Phygeles and Hermogenes, Phygelus and Hermogenes, we don't know anything else about Onesiphorus here other than what Paul writes in these few verses. We don't know if he was a servant in the household. We don't know if he was the master of the household. We don't know anything about him, but what a mark he left on Paul. Listen to Paul's language. Onesiphorus was not ashamed of my chains. He searched for me earnestly. He found me. He often refreshed me. God experientially supplied grace to Paul through this guy that we don't know anything else about. God supplied his grace to Paul and it had an effect. It refreshed him. It sustained him. It nourished his soul. That's how God works. That's how he supplies his grace to his People, verse 17, when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly. Others fled from Paul. As soon as Paul was arrested on trial, nobody wanted to associate him or be near him. I mean, it, it would be dangerous. We can understand why nobody wanted to be caught up in that. I mean, if I associate with him, I might be arrested too. So everybody else is fleeing. And meanwhile, Onesiphorus finds his way toward Paul. He's moving toward him. It doesn't sound like he was in Rome at the time. So he wasn't there to stand by Paul in his first defense, but he went to Rome. And again, we don't know if he was there on a business trip and happened to look Paul up or if he went there specifically to find him. It doesn't matter. Either way, he searched for Paul diligently, earnestly, persistently. Just try to picture the scenario, how difficult it would have been to find a single Roman prisoner in Rome. In these days when there are no publicly available records of the prisoners. Nobody's writing down their names. I mean, most of these people are slaves, prisoners, enemies of the emperor. Nobody cares about where they are, where they get lost in these dungeons and prison systems. So for Onesiphorus to find Paul took time and persistence, probably money to pay guards to give him information. Is he in there? Can I look at the records? This was, it required earnest effort, and it was dangerous. I mean, poking around about the whereabouts 
of somebody who's been convicted as an enemy of the emperor could get you in a lot of trouble. He searched for Paul earnestly. And Paul says, and he found me. He found me. He didn't give up. And that had such an effect on Paul that when he thinks of it, he breaks off and repeats this prayer. Verse 16, the prayer is, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. Verse 18, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. There's a play on words here. He searched for me and found me. May he find mercy from the Lord. To find mercy from the Lord, to find favor from the Lord, is a common phrase in the Old Testament Hebrew. Genesis 6, 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Or Moses prays in Exodus 33, If I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. To find favor from God is to be in right relationship with Him. To have God, as our call to worship this morning reminded us, have God's eye on you that He is working on your behalf. Paul prays for Onesiphorus because he's so overcome with emotion when he thinks about the effort and the love that Onesiphorus showed for him. It's common in the Old Testament also to read of God showing mercy, granting mercy, giving favor. And Paul takes these two phrases and blends them together in something that commentators just kind of go, is that on purpose or on accident? It sounds like a mistake almost. Paul repeats the Lord in verse 18, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord. May the Lord grant it because that's the only kind of mercy there is. God given, God granted mercy. Nobody earns this. As payment from God, God gives it freely. May God grant it to him to find mercy from the Lord. This is in no way any kind of indication that Paul had some uncertainty about the salvation status of Onesiphorus. He's not praying, like, God, please save his soul. He's not worried about that. It's an expression of his profound gratitude. How could Paul ever pay him back for the love and the care that he showed to Paul? Instead, he just asks for the greatest thing you could ask for for anybody. The very favor and kindness from God to rest on someone. He's praying for that favor to rest on Onesiphorus now in this life and forever and ever and ever. It it reminds me of uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Onesiphorus was merciful to Paul when he was in need, when he was forgotten about in prison, when he was suffering alone. He was merciful to Paul. He showed him mercy in practical, tangible ways. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The point is, mercy is a gift from God. It's not something anyone earns, and even the most merciful people are themselves in need of God's mercy. And those who know their own need for mercy are the most merciful to others. That was Onesiphorus. That was the kind of man he was. And Paul says, he doesn't just say, he refreshed me when he found me. He often refreshed me. So evidently, he stayed in Rome for some time. He visited Paul repeatedly. I wish we knew more about what those visits entailed. Conversation, prayer together. Maybe Onesiphorus brought reading materials for Paul. Maybe he brought him food, clothing. I mean, the government wasn't going to supply all of those necessities, so 
Onesiphorus probably took it on himself and continued to, to spend money to support Paul while he's in prison. Again and again and again, he goes to Paul, and Paul says, over and over, it refreshed my soul. What refreshed him was not just that Onesiphorus felt warm fuzzies for Paul, but that he actually expended energy and risked his own well-being to be with Paul. That, think about that. God actually supplies grace to people, through people, in practical ways. So that means that when I say you need community, community, gospel community is shelter for you in the midst of hard things, that doesn't detract at all from your need for God. It's like saying you need water to live. That doesn't mean you need God less. It just means you need God, and one of the things you need from God is the water that He sends on the earth in His kindness to us. You need water, God gives water. You need community, God supplies community. And community is a means of God's grace to sustain the faith of His people. Paul says, He was not ashamed of my chains. This gets at the heart of the issue of sharing and suffering. This is forefront in Paul's mind. When he thinks about all the people who deserted him, he recognizes it was out of embarrassment. It was out of shame, not wanting to associate with him, with the name of Jesus, with the gospel. He, he, he brings this idea up three times in the first chapter of 2 Timothy. He says it to Timothy in verse 8, Therefore, Timothy, you do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. He says it about himself in verse 12, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And then he says it of Onesiphorus here in verse 16, he was not ashamed of my chains. Pay attention to this. Pay attention. That, that clues us in to the fact that when pressure rises, when opposition comes, when persecution increases, one of the greatest temptations you will feel is to distance yourself from others who bear the name of Jesus. And yet the very thing that you need and they need in hard times is the shelter that God supplies through community, through the household of God. Commenting on this verse, Charles Spurgeon wrote, It's the same now. If the servant of God shall fall into the disfavor of the great ones of the earth, many will be ashamed of him. And so that's how desertion happens. Jesus himself warned, warned of this, Luke 9, 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But that's not Onesiphorus. And, and here's the thing. This came as no surprise to Paul or to Timothy. What Onesiphorus demonstrated when the risk was high was totally consistent with the kind of character he had proven when there was no risk. Totally consistent with the kind of man that Onesiphorus was known to be. He had a reputation for good works. Paul ends this section, verse 18, saying to Timothy, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. And he was known for acts of mercy, acts of service, Acts of kindness, generosity, hospitality. That's what he was known for. Practical ways of building up the faith of others in the church. That's encouraging. 
Because it just tells us you don't have to wait for things to get hard to build up the kind of character that when pressed in hard things responds in demonstrations of mercy to brothers and sisters around you. Onesiphorus was known for this kind of thing. When you belong to the household of God, you have a shelter that can weather the storm. I want to share with you a, what I think is a powerful picture of this need that believers have for community in the midst of suffering. Even those whose faith and confidence in God is totally steadfast. All of our hope is in Him, and yet the, the benefit that God Himself supplies through other believers. We can learn from martyrs in history. In the early third century, first couple years of 200 AD, there was persecution that broke out against Christians, mainly in North Africa under a Roman emperor named Severus. There's a story from Carthage about a a young woman. She was wealthy. Uh, She was a new convert to Christianity. Apparently, her young husband had died. She was a widow and had a, a young baby. Her name was Perpetua. Clement of Alexandria describes the persecution that broke out under Severus, saying many martyrs are daily burned, confined, or beheaded before our eyes. So Perpetua and a group of Christians in Carthage were arrested. Because she came from a wealthy family, there was pressure on her to offer a sacrifice for the well-being of the emperor. She refused. Her father would come and visit her in prison, begging her, please, distance yourself from these Christians. Think about me. Think about your child. Perpetua refused, and she's in prison with several other believers, including a slave. So you have this wealthy woman and a slave woman, and the slave woman, her name was Felicity. She was eight months pregnant. And this group of Christians, they were sentenced to be thrown to the wild beasts in the arena in Carthage as part of festivities that were coming up. I mean, for sport, just the thought is unthinkable to us. Well, it was against... Roman law to kill a pregnant woman. I mean, how humane of them, right? And so that distressed this group of Christians that Felicity wouldn't die with them. Even though they were all resolved to suffer no matter what, the thought that she would not die with them moved them. Here's what one author writes. Felicity was accordingly fearful that her death would be postponed and instead of dying with her fellow Christians, she would be put to death later in the company of some group of criminals. She and her companions accordingly prayed. They prayed. And right after praying, Felicity went into labor with the pains normal to an eight-month delivery. And a servant of the jailers said to her, if you cry out like that now, what will you do when you're thrown to the beast's which you despised when you refused to sacrifice. And she replied, Now it is I that suffer. But then another will be in me who will suffer for me because I also am about to suffer for him. Thus she brought forth a little girl whom a certain sister brought up as her own. And that group of Christians was thrown to the beasts together. I mean, what faith and what courage and what confidence, and yet in the midst of that, what desire to be together with other Christians in that suffering? Because their hearts were refreshed 
and strengthened by the faith of the others. That moves me. And it increases my affection for all of you, brothers and sisters in Christ, and the love that I have for you and the value that I place on this gospel community. But what if? What if you do find yourself all alone one day? Here's the good news. Jesus himself suffered alone so that you never will. You remember when Jesus was on the Mount of Olives before his arrest? And he, he told his disciples, I mean, he told them up front, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And just as he told, him, told them, all of his disciples abandoned him. Peter boldly says, not I, Lord, I will die for you. And Peter couldn't even stay awake to watch and pray with Jesus. Jesus is arrested and he's on trial and Peter's outside curious to see what's happening. And yet when he is spotted and identified as being one of those who had been with Jesus, he calls down curses on himself. Let me be cursed. Let me be damned if I know that man. That's how much he wants to distance himself from Jesus in that moment. So Jesus suffers alone. But here's the thing. Jesus suffered abandonment and rejection that Paul never, ever knew. In Paul's darkest hour, he can say, 2 Timothy 4.17, All deserted me, but the Lord stood by and strengthened me. All deserted me, but the Lord stood by and strengthened me. I was not alone. The Lord was with me. Jesus, in his darkest hour, what does he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken by the Father because the Father treated him as though he, the sinless Son of God, was guilty of all your sin. So you can be totally confident that since Jesus has paid the full price, God the Father will never, ever abandon you. Ever. The cup is empty. There's no more wrath. Jesus paid the price and since Jesus suffered the full force of God's wrath against sin, you never will. He is the one who, 2 Timothy 1.10, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. He's the one who promised, Matthew 28, behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. And he is the one who will say to all who endure to the end, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your fellowship with us, for your suffering on our behalf so that we have this gift, fellowship with the Father, reconciliation to God. And now we as members, uh, ministers of reconciliation, we make this appeal to the world. Be reconciled to God. Father, would you produce in us steadfastness and faithfulness and loyalty to Jesus and commitment to one another. Sustain our faith through whatever the coming days may bring, whether it's suffering illness, suffering job loss, suffering threats and opposition or 
persecution, whatever it may be, oh God, preserve our faith and thank you for the gift of community with your saints. Be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.